In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, our texts show us the significance of God's choice to reveal himself to us. In Deuteronomy, as Moses speaks to the people to prepare them to start their lives in the promised land, he makes it clear, ask now about former ages, long before your own, ever since the day that God created human beings from one end of heaven to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened, or has its like ever been heard of? The revelation of the law, the manner in which God had taken them out of Egypt and guided them through the wilderness and defeated nations much stronger than they, this was all unprecedented. The God who made the cosmos took a special interest in these people and made himself known to them. With this kind of access, though, there's an expectation. Because the infinite God has revealed himself to Israel and to us, giving this insider knowledge of the divine... We have a unique responsibility. There are terms and conditions. Now that we know better, we ought to do better. Moses instructs the Israelites to acknowledge and take heart to the fact that the Lord is God and keep his statutes and commandments, statutes and commandments so that you may long remain in the land. Jesus doesn't frame the question in terms of punishment, but he does establish a similar expectation for the disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This conditionality is actually pretty frequently presented in scripture. Do this and you will live, disobey and you will die. But as we all know, human history is mostly a narrative of moral failure, of people knowing good and doing evil, of neither acknowledging God nor keeping his commandments. We know it from others, we know it in our own lives, that there's a way that leads to life and we frequently choose death. I don't want to dwell here too much this morning. We are in Eastertide, not in Lent. But I want to spend more time unpacking the answer to this conundrum, which is that we worship the God whose character is always to have mercy, as we say in the prayer of humble access. There will always be a gap between what we ought to do and what we have done, but God chooses to make up the difference. In his first epistle, John, the beloved disciple, frequently presents both the things we should have done and God's grace for when we don't do them. And in that vein, our passage this morning gives comfort to highly self-critical people because While John clearly states that abiding in Jesus and obeying his commandments are one and the same, he also points out that our hearts can be reassured when they condemn us, because God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. God knows your failures even better than you do. We can't hide our sin from God, and when we come to confess, calling to mind our sins and repenting of them, turning as best as we can to a virtuous life, God hears our confessions knows the sins we haven't even discovered yet, and gives us grace all the same. When Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit, the name he uses encompasses several meanings. The Spirit is a helper, as translations often render it, to come alongside us, to strengthen us, to do what we could not do otherwise. But he's also the comforter, present in our sorrows and pain and grief, and the advocate, the one who fights on our behalf. This is how the God of the Bible interacts with humans that he made in his image. He is always self-revelatory. He always takes the first step in restoring what we have broken, drawing near to us instead of demanding that we ascend to him. In the promise made to Abraham in the rescue from Egypt, in giving the law in the return from exile and the incarnation, God is always the initiator. His action is always to accommodate to us. 
And yet we're still left with this opening expectation. God has made such a step to reveal himself to us, and therefore we ought to respond to it. So what I want to do is take a little bit of advice from each of our texts this morning to see how we might do that. First, in Deuteronomy, Moses, even before the people of Israel have settled into their permanent home, is already pretty pessimistic about the prospect of their faithfulness, saying just a few verses earlier in chapter 4, when you've had children and children's children and become complacent in the land, and then continues on to issue warnings of the curses that will befall Israel when they drift away from God. John Goldengate translates the word for complacent as sleepy. Inertia pulls on all of us, and settling for a less-than-ideal way of life is always a temptation. The law is an expression of God's faithfulness, of his choice to reveal the ways that lead to life to his people so that they might live and be more fully human among their neighbors. But it has to be revealed because the law isn't intuitive or natural. It's what we call special revelation, particular revelation that shows us how we might resist and push back against the destructive forces of sin and death that we might otherwise become subject to. And in the face of this potential complacency or probable complacency, Moses implores the people to remember. Remember how God drove out those other nations which were mightier than you. God did these things that you couldn't do on your own. That remembrance manifests in the daily, weekly, and yearly rituals that the law that would startle the people out of their slumber into the light of who God is and who they were called to be. We can do the same in daily routines, in weekly Sabbath, in rituals and habits that force us to stop, jar ourselves out of our sleepiness, and remember who we are. This isn't just ritual for ritual's sake. The Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath. But the Sabbath was made for humans. So don't think about the call to habituate virtue, to create these things as a law by which God will assess your performance later. Do the work of remembering, because in remembering, you call to mind who God is and who you are called to be. So next, in 1 John, the apostle issues a call to believe and obey, sort of like the call in Deuteronomy to acknowledge God and follow the commandments. Don't bifurcate your life into compartments of thinking on one hand and doing on the other. Instead, strive to live a fully integrated life. John writes that we shouldn't love in word or speech, but in truth and action, He's not saying that word and speech are unimportant, but that our love for each other must be grounded not in ideas, but in reality. There's a good chance that John's audience was encountering early forms of a type of thinking called Gnosticism, a philosophy that developed in earnest in the next century. Gnostics bifurcated the soul and the body and asserted essentially that we were souls trapped in bodies. And so we all had to focus on our spiritual lives, but that physicality was unimportant. And not only does this idea undercut the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus, pretty crucial to our understanding of who God is and who he has revealed himself to be, but it also directs our lives into the spiritual realm and never addresses lived reality. Think about what this can do when all you think about is what's going to happen later, how my soul is doing, but your body doesn't matter, and your neighbor's body doesn't matter, and their hunger doesn't matter. There is a way to love each other in rhetoric that never translates into action. Talk is cheap, as they say. This is why John says we ought to lay down our lives for each other, the ultimate action of embodied love that we can offer one another. 
But it isn't just these extravagant actions that we're called to. In verse 17, John asks how God's love could possibly be abiding in you if you see your brother and sister in need and yet refuse to help. If my love is only on display from the pulpit, then I'm not truly loving. If I say peace be with you and you go out hungry, I'm not actually loving. And this is a unique temptation in a time when we've spent so much of our lives isolating and that most of our activity is spent in that placeless place called the internet. It makes it very easy to be formed or better yet deformed into people whose love only finds its expression in words and speech. I don't want to dismiss the real value of encouragement that can happen online, but you probably can't properly mourn with those who mourn asynchronously in messages back and forth. Our love must be grounded in reality, which means we have to refocus our moral imaginations to our neighbors, our actual neighbors, who we can let borrow our tools or take in their mail or let them log into our Wi-Fi or bring them a meal or sit with them when they lose a parent or listen when they vent about the homeowners association. This kind of love is unspectacular but it is, I think, the proper expression of who God has called us to be. Because most of our lives is actually spent in entirely ordinary ways. And so most of our opportunities to love each other won't take place in grand gestures made in large displays, but in small, forgettable acts that form us and form our neighborhoods. But if that seems too little, if it feels like the call of the gospel is a manifesto for world-changing, take heart. If God chose some runt nation of former slaves to be his chosen people, settled them in a land in the midst of empires that would rise and fall around them, and then went on to choose to build his church on the foolish and the simple and grew it from marginalized widows and infectious sick and slaves and children left out to die, maybe his kingdom doesn't make it itself known through the powerful and through the mighty. Maybe it actually grows in unseen and unnoticed ways maybe like yeast in flour or like a tiny seed planted in the soil. We need to love each other, not just in word and speech, but in truth and action. And lastly, when we feel weak and burdened or that we haven't done enough, that we haven't actually cared about our neighbor, neighbor enough or we haven't loved our family enough or we've fallen short of that expectation, we can be encouraged and spurred on by Jesus' words. On that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. Through Jesus, we've been invited not only to follow in this way of life, but we've been invited into fellowship with the Father and the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. When the powers of sin and death seem to be overwhelming, we're invited into communion with life itself, with God from whom all life flows. Certainly, Jesus exhorts his disciples to keep his commandments. May we do the same. But he promises that the Holy Spirit will come and comfort them and comfort us. I've been circling around this idea already, but let me make it explicit. When God gives the law, when Jesus invites us to keep his commandments, and when John instructs his readers to love in action and in truth, the things we're called to do aren't arbitrary. God didn't look at all the possibilities of human action in eternity past, draw a line in the middle, and just decide that some of them would be called good, some of them would be called bad. Righteousness isn't just a board game with rules for us to follow. God, the one who is good, true, and beautiful, invites us to participate more fully in goodness, truth, and beauty. Evil isn't like getting a math answer wrong. It's like a participation in nothingness, 
Evil is coldness or darkness, not a thing, but the absence of a thing. And so when Jesus tells his disciples and us that because he lives, they shall live, it isn't just a promise of a second life after death. When Jesus tells Nicodemus that those who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life, what he's inviting him and us to is true life, even now, abundant life, living into reality. When God reveals himself to Israel and to us, and we are expected to live into that reality, we are being invited into the things that are the most real, most true, most good, most beautiful. If we see the commandments as rules to follow just so we won't get into trouble, like an eschatological scantron sheet that will spit out our final grade after we die, we'll end up resenting the lawgiver for spoiling our fun. I don't mean to say that the Bible doesn't speak about judgment of our actions. It absolutely does. But if we think that by giving us his commandments, God's invited us into a life with him, a life that is more human than what the world offers, then we can allow the law to beckon us not just begrudgingly into following the rules and instead a call to drink deep from the wells of the wisdom of God who knows what it means to truly live. We can engage in consistent remembering, which will remind us of who we are, who God is, and then we can love each other in word and deed, and that loving will flow from our participation in the one who is love. And so this morning, I pray that we may know and remember God's revelation to us in his word and through his spirit, his ways and his commandments, loving each other not just in words, but in truth and in action. And may our obedience feel less like a mandatory rule to follow and more like an invitation into true life, an invitation into fellowship with the God whose character is always to have mercy, who chose to reveal himself to us in his son, sustains us by his spirit, and who always takes the first step to draw us closer to him. Amen.